Hello. And welcome to the Betsy Betsy Boss Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back. We took a short sabbatical through the end of February after our Britney episode, which we think everybody (laughs) enjoyed so much, especially us. Yes. We had the time of our lives talking to Leanne. She was just uh, delightful and had so much great information to share. Yeah. And we ourselves, I guess, needed a breather after that because we were just so full of good spirits (laughs) that we took a little breaky and now we're back. We're back and we've got another good interesting topic here to talk about today. Yeah, we've got a real doozy. Um, But before we do that, I thought we'd spill some liberty about the whole Harry and Meghan saga and the interview with Oprah last week. Very interesting. I ended up watching the whole thing. Did you? Yes. Yeah. And I I couldn't stop watching, honestly. I've never really like had an opinion on Megan one way or the other. Yeah. I truthfully, I never really like cared that much about the whole, you know, royal family and all that stuff. Me neither. I've never been into it. Never really cared. And I don't know. This was just a really fascinating interview. I agree. For a lot of different reasons. And I just think it's it's worth spilling some liberty about. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is that and who knows if it's all true or, you know, like if, if she's framing stuff in a certain way still. But it was really surprising to me for her to talk about how accepting and welcoming the queen was, because I yes. thought it was going to be mostly about the queen being the one kind of saying this stuff and it going down through the ranks or whatever but it seemed like she was nothing but warm and supportive and all that stuff I don't know that was really surprising yeah it sounds like Megan really was trying to almost like protect the queen's reputation and you know say hey I hate the royal family and all the interplay that goes on therein but not you queen right right (laughs) but I mean it seemed genuine like what she what she was saying and everything and that was just surprising to me because like I said she's from such a different generation that I thought she was going to be the source of the problem but it doesn't sound like it yeah I did too and it sounds like she really just was sort of a grandmotherly presence and always was warm and accepting And I don't know, really was not the problem. What was interesting, though, is since that interview, the queen did come out with a statement in response to the interview. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it was, I thought, very lackluster, very flaccid. And it just didn't really address any of the racial issues that were brought up, at least to me. So it goes like this. The whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, and Archie (laughs) will always be much-loved family members. That's it. Uh, She literally did not address anything. So she she addressed nothing. She just said, like... Oh, they covered topics. Race was one of them. We'll we'll take care of it. Exactly. And she also <laughs> pled ignorance to some degree because oh, yeah. the first part You're of that right. statement is we're sad because we never really knew right. how bad it's things sad were to learn for Harry and Meghan. The second part is saying, and frankly, I think that the um, clause that says, while some recollections may yeah. vary, essentially invalidates Agreed. the racial claims made. It, it definitely, well, it invalidates the whole thing. Like, it just is like, yeah, she may have remembered things this way, but, you know, we have other people that say differently. Yeah, and 
I don't know. I just found it very disappointing. And yeah. I think if I were in their camp, I would be very disappointed by that I statement. agree. I, I totally agree. That is disappointing. And yeah, just not very, I don't know. They could have done better. Yeah. And I, I get they're on a pretty tight rope, but like, come on. I know. Um, But in terms of disappointment, I was also disappointed with slash lost by the fact that Megan said something to the effect of, Oh, well, I never really looked into becoming a member of the royal family before entering into this position. Uh, How? I know. Have you not seen Princess Diaries? Right. Have you not seen What a Girl Wants? Have you you just not, like... Lived in society? Yeah. Like, that's the thing that I just don't... I don't understand. That was really... And, like, when she was talking about meeting the queen for the first time and being like, wait, we have to curtsy? Like, what do we... Like, I just... She seemed like she knew nothing. It was just looking at the queen as Harry's grandma. And it's like, no. Like, I mean, that's great if you want to make it normal and want to make it, you know, casual or whatever because you're hoping to be family one day or whatever. But I just... I don't understand that either. Like, (laughs) I just don't understand how you have no knowledge of anything and she equated the royalty to like famous people in LA right yeah that was interesting yeah I found that just completely stupid like really (laughs) this is the same thing to you like these are politicians yeah they're an incredibly high-powered family that Kim Kardashian (laughs) right not Kim Kardashian like give me a break yeah it's a completely different thing yeah so I don't know how she could be so naive in that regard not to say that her statements you know weren't valid and that her concerns weren't valid but like Come on. I know. Yeah. You never that... Googled your boyfriend? Exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That is very surprising to me. But the one topic that I thought was also really interesting that she talked about was going through depression. Yes. And I just couldn't get over thinking about the parallels with Harry's mom. And, and I don't know. That just like really, really struck me of how hard that must have been for him, too. Yeah. Uh, to seeing see his that. wife potentially going down the same you know route that his mother did and the issues that she had and it's almost like history repeating itself so uh, I don't know it's just them leaving the royal family having issues with the royal family mental health issues and yeah a lot of similar themes to Diana which hey check out our Diana episode if you (laughs) if you're interested in hearing more about that but Um, Another thing that I found interesting about the depression anxiety piece was what was Harry's role in all that? Because all I really heard from Meghan and from Harry during that interview was Harry knew I was struggling. So he didn't leave me home alone. He took me to a ball. Right. I know. Yeah. She was like holding his hand and he was like holding it really tight. Yeah. And like. That was his big saving grace, yeah. his big move to, like, protect her. Again, I understand you're under an incredible level of scrutiny that, you know, we can't understand as civilians. But, like, come on. I know. Yeah. it. That was a little and, – and they wouldn't, like, get her help or let her get help for this. And that whole part was very – vague and just not super clear I didn't think about like okay well how was this resolved too exactly like it seems like she's doing better or at least speaking about it I would assume she's you know seeking treatment or something like that because I don't think it would be necessarily something she'd talk about without doing that but it didn't seem like it was really clear kind of how she's handling it now or what the big turning point was no not even a little bit and 
yeah and again unclear what harry's role was in the whole thing and yeah what he's done to be a supportive husband because again i mean he's seen this all before again he was right. a little boy and you know it's different seeing your mom go through something than to see your wife right but by the same token it's like y'all are partners in this like how did you step up to make this better right yeah that's that's very true i i and it was I, th- I thought it was great that the majority of the interview was just Megan. Um, and then obviously he came out at the end. But I agree. I don't think he really kind of contributed much no. to many of the questions that were still out there or the situations that were discussed. Yeah, it's so true. And obviously a lot of the real issues lie with her and her race and the, you know, the monarchy and their concern with the racial kind of issues that are associated with having somebody of a different color join the royal family. And, you know, obviously it's sickening to hear this stuff about, you know, having concerns of what color Archie was going to be when he was born. I mean, that's pretty nasty. That's awful. Yeah, that's as bad as it gets. And Oprah's expression really says it all when she drops that bomb on her. Oprah's chin pretty much hit the floor. Yep. Just a lot of weird stuff. I'm I'm interested to see kind of how this develops over the next couple weeks and like who else makes statements about this. I'm surprised that the queen even made a statement. I kind of am too, just because it was like it was done with Oprah and they're obviously not official mem- members of the royal family anymore. And it just seemed very, um, what do I want to say, like more mainstream media than the royals kind of participate in. So I agree. I'm surprised that they even addressed it but yeah well speaking of the media too what fascinated me was how completely and totally different the relationship is between the royal family and the media and great britain as a whole yeah versus americans and the media and our celebrities like we don't have any kind of trust of the media we know that it's like a rag and you know we can read it for some dumb gossip that's probably not true But the way that they framed the media over there in Great Britain, I mean, it sounds like there's just a big trust that they're in bed with them. Yeah, they're totally in bed with them. It sounds like the media even has their special party, their cocktail party at the palace Palace. or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I know. I don't even at the place where the queen is. You know, the queen's house. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was really shocking. That was interesting to me too. Yeah, just a whole different ball game and a whole different perception of the media and what like kind of the greater truth is. Yeah, and I, like I think like what you're saying too, like why do they care so much when everybody knows these tabloids are like Bullshit. outlandish? Yeah. yeah, like why does the royal family care so much to the de- like degree of having them in the palace for their holiday parties like exactly i don't know yeah it's interesting but speaking of the media Ooh. and stories getting out why don't we jump into our topic for the day let's do it well today's topic might leave a bad taste in your mouth Ooh. when it comes <laughs> to the democratic party <laughs> Um, because, of course, today's topic is Monica Lewinsky, <laughs> yep. and we are so excited to get into it today. She is a loaded concept. Absolutely, And yes. there's a lot more than meets the eye. Yeah. We were just watching the documentary, um, The Clinton Affair, and I feel like it gives a whole new insight into what was going on behind the scenes. You hear from Monica herself, and... 
it, it's some of the other key players in the whole situation. And there's a lot of things going on that I just, I don't think you realize when you're trying to look into this, um, aside from hearing it from these people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so many nuances to this story. And you think of it as being the story of Slick Willie being just that <laughs> and, you know, being a slime ball, taking advantage of somebody who is young and naive and, you know, getting his rocks off at the expense of this young, dumb intern. But it's really so much more. I mean, there's betrayal, there's lies, there's cover-ups, there's scandal. It's it's an incredible story. Yeah. And I think the reason that we came up with this topic for today is because during our Britney Spears episode, and we were realizing that when Britney rose to fame, it was during this Monica Lewinsky era. And it was when all this stuff was going on, there was the idea of this hot young woman being hit on by older men. And that's sort of how Britney came into focus as this hot young thing. She was too young and too sexualized, you know, for her own good. She became a like a character, an archetype in her own right. Yeah. And in the same way, Monica really was sort of created as this caricature and this character who would endure for the next several yeah. years. I mean, even today. Oh, my God. That, everybody yeah, knows. You say her name. Yeah. Like, think about that. That, I think, is crazy to think, you know, her at the beginning of this going in as an intern and she comes out as somebody that is still a household name. Yes. Probably not for the yeah, not reason for that she wanted, but. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. But I did just want to put out there that she was born uh, July 23rd, 1973. Um, she ended up, though, becoming an intern at the White House. This is really where the story begins. Sure is. And I believe it was 1995. Yeah, it was summer of 1995. She was 21 That's at the crazy. time. And she came to the White House as this unpaid intern. I think you said a family friend got her the job. Yeah, she had a friend that had done the internship a year or two years before. And she had just graduated, didn't know what she wanted to do. Um, I believe her degree was in psychology. And she was like, okay, this sounds like a good opportunity. So she took the internship. Right. And so, you know, throughout the summer, um, she worked as an unpaid intern. She was in the office of the chief of staff, Leon Panetta. And it sounds like it didn't really take long for a sexual relationship to begin between Monica and Bill Clinton. Um, I think that began around November 1995. So in 1995, um, it was actually an interesting time for Monica and, and the environment um, was just perfect for it to kind of lead to her meeting the president and having this opportunity to get so close to him. So she had finished the internship and she had actually been offered a job not long after. But in November of 1995, there was the government shutdown. Mm -hmm. And so the normal 450 employees were whittled down to now just 90 employees. And because she was in this transition period where she hadn't started her official job yet, um, she was still technically an intern and unpaid, so she was able to continue working in that interim period. And because of that, being a smaller group of individuals, she was doing a lot of things that 
most people her age and and level would not be doing and she had access to people like the president which (laughs) otherwise would not have happened right yeah i mean you're think about it you're a low man on the totem pole you're a lowly intern you should be probably getting people coffee but because of this perfect storm of different circumstances she was just kind of up close and personal i think she described it as a backstage pass yes she Um, yeah she she kind of had the yeah, the, the access that she just would not have had otherwise. Yeah, there's no way. And, you know, how is a 21-year-old kid supposed to deal with, you know, this incredible access that she had? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I can't imagine at that age I'd be starstruck to be interacting with people like this, you know, fresh out of college in your first job, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking, too, about what we would even do. And we'll, you know, not to get ahead of myself, but um, we'll get into it further. But how we would even feel about having a conversation with the president, let alone, you know, this kind of like him getting intimate yeah yeah exactly but um so slick willie obviously (laughs) got confronted with these allegations before these sexual misconduct allegations um when he was the governor of arkansas and one of his employees at that time whose name was paula jones who we saw get absolutely ridiculed and roasted on this Monica documentary. Speaking of the media. Speaking of the media and how cruel they can be. And, huh. Um, But Paula Jones filed a civil lawsuit against Slick Willie, alleging that he sexually harassed her. Um, And it was actually during that lawsuit that I think Monica's name first sort of came to light. And it was all this discovery was, you know, put on in order to, kind of make up the background of this case and to show patterns of behavior. And the lawyers for Jones um, brought up Monica Lewinsky's name back then as another inappropriate sexual relationship with another government employee. Yeah. And to give a little background, too, on, you know, right around that time period. um, So obviously the relationship was going on between Monica and the president And right around this time, too, of the lawsuit um, was when the election of 96 was going on. And the president, his staff or, you know, whoever under him kind of had an idea about what might be going on with Monica, or at least to the very degree that it didn't look good, whether there was something going on or not. And they actually moved her from her position in the White House to the Pentagon. And meanwhile, this whole time, she's you know, being told by the president that as soon as he wins the election, he's going to bring her right back to the White House. And it is really sad to see because she was talking about how, you know, she's just like waiting on and, and holding on for, so sad. you know, this opportunity. And she's she says now thinking she's like, I was naive about the fact thinking that he'd win and just bring me right back. Um, but it's just it's sad to see because she also talks about how he would call her but she had no way to call him back. So Being the president. yeah, so she's over there at her desk or whatever, um, gets a call. It lights up POTUS also, which is which just is crazy <laughs> that he was doing that. Yeah. And she's like, you can't do this. This is stupid. People are wondering why this is happening. Right. But she's just kind of clinging to this idea that it's going to be all fine after he wins the presidency. 
Yeah, which was, you know, completely naive to think that. What's messed up, too, is while Monica is working at the Pentagon, waiting in the wings, really just, like, exploding with, you know, this waiting and waiting and hoping that she's going to get her job back at the White House and get brought back into her boyfriend, honestly, Bill Clinton, um, and to see him again and all this, she was used to seeing him a couple times a week and then suddenly she's at the Pentagon. She barely, you know, gets to interact with him. She is like ready to burst with this anticipation and she decides to confide in her fellow Pentagon yeah. employee, a rat, yeah. Linda Tripp, yeah. who is the real villain of this story, honestly. Ugh. And I hate to pin it on another woman, especially during Women's History Month, but like... Linda Tripp. She's the absolute example of women not supporting other women. Yes. She just totally turned on this young. And it's like, it's hard to go one way or the other saying, oh, Monica was young and naive. So this, you know, but she was like, you know, whether she was a well-experienced, you know, woman closer in age to Linda Tripps, who had, you know, kind of knew the ins and outs of politics and had worked there for a while. Either way, like what Linda Tripp did to her, I think is just awful. Oh, it's a nightmare. And yeah, we'll definitely unpack it. But it was summer of 96 when Monica decides, all right, I'm going to have a gossip sesh with my girl Linda at the lunch table. And And I I want to preface it by saying like how she even kind of got into the this position of telling Linda was that Linda had mentioned something previously about like oh, the president, you know, I'm sure he likes you or something like that along those lines. Um, And Monica was sick of it. But then at this time, it had been like eight months or something since he uh, won the presidency. And she's still not back at the White House. And she's just like over it and annoyed. And Linda asks about it, about, you know, her and the president again. And this time, Monica's just like, yeah, you know what? We did have something like it's over and just starts telling her the whole thing. Yeah, she was she was fed up at that point. And unfortunately, um, Linda Tripp was really in the perfect position to take advantage. And um, she was somebody who was a major opportunist. She always wanted to have a book written, I believe, about um, just kind of D.C. in general and the inner, inner workings of the Capitol and politics and all that. And she had pitched her idea to a number of different, I guess, publicists, different, different news outlets, and all of them were like, Linda, get a better story. Yeah, anyone okay? could like, tell this story. You yeah, got nothing. Like, this is not fucking interesting. We don't want to talk about DC in general. We get it. You worked there. No one, like, it's not no that cares. interesting. Yeah, sorry. Like, until you come back with something salacious, basically, like, no one wants to hear it. So... Unfortunately, Lewinsky has this already, you know, desperate for a story trip and decides to confide confide in the wolf in sheep's clothing. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. And so then good old Linda calls back one of the publishers. Her name is Lucianne Goldberg. And she tells her, look, I have this actual story I think that you might be interested in. And she doesn't name Monica's name, obviously, but she tells her kind of the whole backstory about what Monica has told her, that the relationship is still ongoing. And to this woman, Lucienne's credit, she says, I mean, it's definitely a story. I'm definitely interested. But, like, do you want to be the person to do this to this poor girl? Yeah, because you will ruin your friendship with her. 
And more than that, you'll ruin this girl's life. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, they obviously, it was a taped phone call between lying Linda and listening Lucy. <laughs> yeah, listening Lucy. And honestly, I thought Lucianne, who is like kind of the slime ball, should have been the slime right. ball of this story. She was the voice of reason. And she was I saying, know. you know, the poor girl, this doesn't really sound like the right thing to do. Are you sure you want to do this, Linda? Right. Are you sure you want to sell out your friend? Because, you know, you're done. You'd have to. And she used the word rat. She was like, you would have yeah. to be a rat. Exactly. You'd have to tape your conversations because right now, Linda, you got no proof. Yes. Okay. Yeah. She's like, what do you have? Like pictures of like what what do you have you can give me and she's like well i take notes on everything she says but of course lucianne is like that's fat lot of good that's gonna do for us if you really want to nail this story down you need cold hard evidence and you do that by recording conversations exactly exactly of course linda tripp armed with a tape recorder and a dream she starts taping her conversations with monica in the fall of 1997 and in these conversations, Monica details all of kind of the different inner workings of her affair with Slick Willie. Yeah. And just like when it started, how it's going, you know, the status updates along the way. And Linda actually says in this documentary that Monica had an almost photographic memory. And it's clear that she does as she, you know, recounts the tale um now like 20 years later that she just has a spectacular memory she clearly is very bright so it's obvious that when monica was telling linda you know shortly after these affairs had happened how specific how clear the details were that monica would have given to linda at the time so she was really kind of unknowingly playing right into oh exactly linda's hand So in December of 1997, Monica gets subpoenaed by lawyers for Paula Jones, who's still suing the president on those sexual harassment charges we talked about. And she makes a final visit to the White House shortly after she gets subpoenaed for these different pieces of information. She was signed in by Bill's faithful secretary, who meanwhile must know so much must know everything (laughs) she must have a head full of knowledge because she saw so much she was constantly letting monica in kind of letting these affairs and who knows like who else could be exactly but apparently while monica made this visit to the white house she had a private meeting with bill clinton and he allegedly encouraged her to be evasive in her answers in the Jones lawsuit in response to that subpoena we talked about. Of course, you know, now there's a ton of pressure on Monica to lie, which is, you know, a crime. But she's clearly feeling pressured. And on January 7th, 1998, Monica files an affidavit in the Jones case. And in that affidavit, she denies ever having a sexual relationship with Bill. Right. Yeah. She was told by an attorney that the president kind of set her up with, who was a long friend of his, that if she signed this affidavit, she most likely would not have to, you know, testify and it would just be signing this and you're good to go. You won't have to testify in the case. And clearly it was lying. And what gets worse is that Linda Tripp is in on this and has recordings of Monica talking about lying. And I believe the 
FBI somehow kind of gets involved with this and gets their hands on these recordings via Linda Tripp. And Linda learns that it's actually not legal to one party recording. And for immunity in this situation, they pretty much said, all right, hand over the tapes and we'll give you immunity. Linda also gets, you know, kind of involved even more in this situation by telling Monica. So she continues to record her and tells Monica that she's being pressured herself about having to testify in the case and or, you know, should she sign an affidavit like Monica did? And she pretty much gets Monica to, um, well, she tells Monica, okay, fine, I'm going to go along with it. I'm going to sign the affidavit. And she has a whole recording called, apparently it's called like the famous talking points of Monica essentially telling her how to lie in the situation, how to be evasive. And like I said, it's all there recorded. Not a good thing. So at the same time, the independent counsel star is doing his own formal investigation about the possibility that perjury is going on and obstruction of justice is going on in the Jones case. And so Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp meet again at the Ritz-Carlton and FBI agents and U.S. attorneys actually intercede on this meeting and take Monica to a hotel room where they question her and offer her immunity, which is humiliating. I mean, if you think about this, Monica thinks she's meeting her good friend Linda at the Ritz, where they have been known to meet, and all of a sudden she gets taken away by FBI agents who batter her with questions. Yeah. So she calls her mother at this point, and her mother comes down from New York City and Her father calls an attorney, a family friend, and, you know, from here, the attorney says, Monica, listen, don't accept the immunity deal. Right. And he flies down to Washington to represent Monica. And it's crazy. I mean, in Clinton's famous deposition on January 17th, 1998, in the Jones lawsuit, he totally denies flat out having a sexual relationship with Monica at all. And Newsweek actually decides not to run a story. Well, yeah, Newsweek decided not to run this story and it actually got scooped by the Drudge Report, which I know I've heard of since then. But it was, I guess, kind of interesting because this was the real first online kind of news breaking, whereas before people, you know, at this time they were still getting stuff in print. And this was the first time that such a big story like this was broken on this website. And it only took two more days before a ton of different news organizations pick up the story, report the sexual relationship between Monica and Bill, and Bill denies all of the allegations. And this scandal just starts to erupt. This is the end of January at this point, and everything's starting to go crazy. So kind of in that same sense... Bill then was caught in this lie about Monica and him lying under oath and being the president or being any person lying under oath is perjury. And like you said, this is kind of where this all really blows up. Now, granted, something that we touched on is part of Clinton's testimony that wherein he said there is not a sexual relationship, an improper sexual relationship or any other kind of improper relationship. 
And he ended up defending this statement as truthful (laughs) later on because he was using the present tense. Right. Saying it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Okay. Now, meanwhile, the independent counsel star ended up getting Monica's famous blue dress. Oh, yes. um, Which was stained with Bill Clinton's semen. Um, quite noticeably, I might add, they yeah, showed a picture, the picture of it in black and white that was like grainy. You could still see that stain it was, bright as yeah, day. Yeah, there was no luminol needed on that one. No, uh-uh. no black light needed. <laughs> well, it, it was interesting too, though. In this whole thing, like I was saying about the story breaking online, actually, all, all of the um, reports for impeachment were released online too, and it was just this weird. Like people didn't really know what the internet was or what you know how things how it all worked and so releasing it online it was like instantly available to everybody right away and this has never happened like that before no so poor monica yeah and something else that really struck me as just being so wrong and dumb is the fact that clinton came back he denied committing perjury again right because according to him the legal definition of oral sex wasn't encompassed by sex per se, okay? So he also relied on the definition of sexual relations. And he basically said that since certain acts, okay, were performed on him and not by him, therefore he didn't engage in sexual relations. Now, how fucked up is that? Well, this to me just sounds like every, like, christian kids like it wasn't really sex like right loophole god's loophole it's terrible and it's also just it's so messed up because you know he's just claiming this total passivity in the encounters between himself and monica and obviously it takes two to tango it's not the case at all yeah and even if it was all her performing certain acts on him you are a willing participant in this you solicited sex or sexual activity from this young woman and you can't just be you know exempt from blame because you got a blowjob and didn't give one right well also too i i know this isn't necessarily a part of this like parsing out the words and the definitions but the power dynamic again like him whether he did anything or not just you know him asking for something and her performing that like there's just such a a power a difference in power between the two of them that you can't say that she's the one just like mauling you and doing all this stuff to you when you're the president of the united states waving in this intern into the back room like right i don't know oh absolutely and even if he wasn't the president he was still you know, much older than her. He still was a willing participant in all this. So for him to just turn around and say, oh, I didn't do it. It's just because stuff was performed on me and not by me. I'm exempt. I didn't participate in sexual relations. So it's just really saddening and creepy. And, you know, the use of like weird phraseology and loopholes are just, I don't know. It's kind of astounding. Yeah. It's not even an attempt to save face, I feel like, at that point, because it's obvious with all these, like, loopholes and stuff. In March of 1998, President Clinton actually moves to invoke executive privilege, which would prevent his top aides from testifying about their private Mm. conversations with him. And then in April, 
Paula Jones's sexual harassment case actually gets dismissed because of a lack of evidence, which is so sad, too. Oh, my God. And granted, I mean, Paula Jones is much more of a kind of backwoodsy type character, you know. Right. Southern accent. Everybody sort of made fun of her. Yeah, she doesn't do like herself that. any justice in a lot of these interviews. She, she really doesn't. She didn't have the proper training or handling that she should have. Back in the Lewinsky case... Secret Service agents get forced to testify before the grand jury because an argument gets rejected that they have protective function privilege. So once these people on the inside end up having to start telling the truth about everything that they saw go on, the secrets really start coming out. And Clinton's lawyers end up giving up on the claim of executive privilege and the media argues that that's because he didn't want to be known as the first president since Nixon mm, to take yeah. an executive privilege claim to the Supreme Court. Right. Not really the best thing to be known for. Yeah. And what's so weird is at the same time, Monica Lewinsky ends up posing for Vanity Fair. Oh, no way. I Did didn't you know see that. that? No. So in, sometime in oh, May, wow. Monica's lawyer, William Ginsburg, tells reporters that he actually agreed to let Vanity Fair send celebrity photographer Herb Ritz to photograph Monica in Malibu because in many ways the lawyer argued that Monica Lewinsky's libido has been imprisoned and thought that the shoot would make her feel good about herself. Oh my god. Well I was I was gonna say I wonder like oh it's like how could she make any money at this point and maybe that was like a you know a little stunt but oh my gosh oh, public awful, opinion <laughs> of her just plummeted when this oh, got released God. yeah i know she, she was vilified just really as the home wrecker and that you know she should apologize and it was really all about her and what she was doing wrong not that the president participated in it so after the trial concluded clinton ended up saying he was profoundly sorry for the burden his behavior imposed on congress and the american people so you know, he was impeached, but right. it didn't really go through or amount to anything because he ended up not getting the necessary majority that was needed to remove him from office. Well, I, I do want to just touch on the other woman, I guess, although she's technically not the other woman in this case, and Hillary and kind of the public um, perception of her after this all came out. And I don't know. I mean, it seemed like people were very much on her side, but also were, I don't know. It seemed like there was maybe a split about people who were like, she shouldn't have taken him back. And then also a lot of people that supported her, you know, for standing by him. Yeah. I mean, I always feel so badly for Hillary because she obviously just is so politically motivated that she was willing to deal with her husband, who was a complete and total cheater slash rat. I mean, great president you know everybody's got their opinions of him every politician is is a slime ball a sli- that's the thing that like you just have to accept like everyone's got their skeletons in their closet in politics like totally if they're good at what they do that's what you got to look at honestly yeah and we were talking about this too like when you agree to become a politician or you agree to become a politician's wife what are you really agreeing to? Like, how much of that are you privy to? How much do you are you aware that your life is going to change and that you're going to be engaging in certain acts or, 
you know, telling certain truths or untruths. Yeah, you you almost give up kind of your. I, yeah. I want to say like you you kind of yeah it, it it I guess it is morals yeah you just kind of have to let it go that this is the world you're signing up to be in now and it's totally different rules and totally different ball game. So Monica, like I guess like I was saying, you know how how the heck does she move on and make get a job even after this? Like your name is that's got to be so difficult. So she actually engaged in a variety of ventures, including designing a line of handbags under her name. Oh, my God. Yeah. Being an advertising spokesperson for a diet plan. Which, hey, she had a glow up. Okay. I want to do whatever diet plan Monica Lewinsky did. Yeah. Because she looks awesome. She was a little bit of a chub scout in her um, interning days. But now she looks better at almost 50 than she did at 22. Yeah, she really looks great. So after the diet plan, then she started working as a television personality. And she then decided to leave the public spotlight for a little bit. Probably wise. Yeah, I would have done that earlier on, but okay. She pursued a master's degree in psychology in London. And then most recently, at least, that, that I'm able to see in 2014, she returned to the public um, eye as a social activist speaking out about cyberbullying. Classic, which was ironically Melania Trump's <laughs> little um, hill to die on. But of all people, I think Monica has much more of a platform than Melania did. But yeah, she calls herself Patient Zero for online harassment. And when she spoke at a 30 under 30 summit for Forbes magazine, she basically says, having survived myself, what I want to do now is help other victims of the shame game survive too. Now, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for Monica to deal with all this harassment, shame, just all around embarrassment, humiliation. I mean, to be a household name for that reason is just so unbelievably sad and must have been so incredibly difficult. So for her to continue to speak out against cyberbullying is really pretty incredible. Yeah, it's pretty and admirable. For her. Yeah, that she that she does this. There's also a whole TED Talk where she, you know, Oh, that's got to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to listen to that. And she asks people to be more compassionate over the internet. And, you know, she just really wants to be a voice for these bully and... <laughs> For these bullied individuals. She wants to defend the bullies. And of course, another thing that she jumped on is the Me Too hashtag. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, she's like the ultimate Me Tooer, if you think about it, since she was a victim of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And she really never really directly explained why she used the Me Too hashtag, but... She does write that looking back at her relationship with Bill, even though it was consensual, since he was 27 years older than her and in a position with a and lot the more president. power. Yep, exactly. <laughs> While she was a lowly freaking intern, she basically said, all right, this relationship was an abuse of power on his yeah. part. And she even said that, okay, I've actually been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Really? Yeah, because once the relationship got disclosed, she just, you know, experienced all this traumatic stuff. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, 
And our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. 